Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and this week we're talking to Queen's Law Professor Lisa Kerr about a recent court case that brings together a number of interesting factors. Prison law, the unwritten code of conduct between prisoners in prison, duress as a legal defense, and the power of non-judicial disciplinary administrators. This show is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online program of its kind offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more about the certificate at takelaw.ca. Joining us from New York City, this is Lisa Kerr. I'm talking to Lisa Kerr, who's an assistant professor here at Queen's University in the Faculty of Law. Uh, she specializes in prison and sentencing law, and she teaches criminal law, both at the JD level, so sort of standard law students, and also handles the criminal law module in the Certificate in Law's Law 201 course. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Uh, so there's been a, an interesting case in the news lately uh, coming out of Ottawa having to do with a prisoner, uh, disciplinary action and appeal, and something called the Prisoner Code. And I was wondering if first you could just kind of unpack what the background of the case was. Right. So this is a case that was about an inmate who refused an order of a correctional officer. And he actually admitted that he refused to follow an order, which is an offense under the um, the rules that apply to inmate conduct uh, in the prison. And what had happened was that there was an, an evening where all the inmates on a particular unit refused to lock their cells. They refused to go into their cells uh, for the evening count and be locked in. And the reason for that was the inmates were protesting something that was happening in the prison and refusing to lock up is often what they will do in order to express their their uh, dissent on something. So this this inmate gets charged with refusing a justifiable order and he winds up in inmate disciplinary court, which is this internal court inside the prison. And the decision maker, who's not a judge but may have some legal training, basically held in this case that this inmate should not be allowed to advance the defense of duress. What the inmate was saying is, yeah, I, I, I disobeyed an order, but I did so because I was worried about the threat of bodily harm from my fellow inmates. You know, I refused to lock up because I thought if I did lock up, then I would face a serious injury from my fellow inmates. And so uh, the defense of duress is all about whether someone did something uh, in a morally voluntary state. So um, the prison decision maker said, no, I don't think you should be able to advance that defense. I think that would be bad policy for the prison context if inmates could advance this defense of duress. And, um, and that was the decision that was made by the prison disciplinary court. So this, this idea of duress, is that something that's commonly used in prisons as a kind of a, a defense against disciplinary action? Well, in prison disciplinary court, many of the same rules apply uh, from the ordinary criminal law. And the defense of duress is a statutory defense, which means it's set out in the criminal code. And inmates do have the same access to statutory defenses as, um, as you know, ordinary defendants in, in, in criminal court. Um, so, you know, occasionally it does come up. Um, you see inmates sometimes advancing the defense of duress. Sometimes they're advancing the defense of self-defense. Um, but it does come up where they say, listen, I did something wrong, but it, it's either, um, you know, I should be excused in the case of duress because of the threat I was under or in the case of self-defense, um, my actions were justified because I was protecting myself or protecting someone else. 
And it seems like in a prison environment, duress would be a little more acute than kind of it is out in the world because you're, well, you're, you're in there. Right. So, and this is where this whole issue of like whether the prison code played some played some role in this in this factual matrix in this case. Um, it's true. There are there are norms of behavior um, inside um, penitentiaries, just like there are norms of behavior in in any society of people living together, and um, you know a solidarity with your fellow inmates, um, not breaking ranks at key moments. Those are important norms. And, um, and, 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 you know, in this particular case, this form of protest, refusing to lock your cell is sort of one of the few ways that inmates have to express their dissent, um, to, you know, administrative or managerial decisions that are being made. And, um, so it's true the the prison code, um, is part of the factual context in this case, although it wasn't the case that the prison code itself is some kind of defense. You know, that's not a defense recognized in Canadian law. Rather, it was part of the factual context for the um, assertion of the legal defense of duress. This prisoner was ordered to lock his cell like, like other prisoners were. He felt in the context he was in, kind of the unwritten rules of the place were that it would be dangerous for him to do that. So he didn't and was subjected to discipline. So, so then, then we get to appeal. Exactly. So when the prison law clinic at Queens heard about this decision that had been made by this prison decision maker, um, the lawyers at the clinic recognized that this decision was wrong in law. Uh, It was pretty straightforward error. Um, And that's because it wasn't that the decision maker said the defense of duress isn't established here. Uh, That would be one thing. And that's the kind of decision that probably would have gotten a lot of deference in our courts. But what the decision maker actually said was, I don't think that prisoners should ever be able to even advance this defense, shouldn't, ever, shouldn't even be able to argue it. And that was wrong in law. Prison decision makers are not allowed to decide which defenses inmates get to advance or not advance. That's a topic for parliament in, in uh, you know, legislating through the criminal code, or it's a topic for the courts. Um, so the clinic lawyers recognized this was going to be a pretty easy win. And so it's very important to file these judicial review applications where you have, you know, these administrative prison decision makers making errors like this. Um, So it's an important, you know, moment of accountability to make sure these decision makers know, like, you know, if you go outside the bounds of the law, uh, we will go to federal court and have your decision reviewed. And so it winds up on appeal. Uh, or judicial review, as we call it in the federal court, and uh, and the federal court said, yeah, this was an error. Y- you know, this this decision maker just applied his own ideas of what the law should be, and and that's um, an unreasonable decision, and that decision was then uh, set aside. Because broadly speaking, prisoners do have the same rights as everyone else in Canada. I mean. It, to an extent, that's the basic principle. Now, there are a number of topics where the rights of inmates are highly circumscribed because of the institutional setting of a prison. Um, so the safety and security of the institution is always going to be an important factor. Um, there's no question that the liberty rights of inmates are uh, very much deprived by the sentence of incarceration. Um, their rights of association are very deprived. Um, that's what it means to be incarcerated. So inmates don't have the exact same rights. That's part of what the punishment is, is the circum, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the sort of interference in rights is what a prison sentence is. Um, but the same law applies um, unless, you know, but it's always going to be in context. So 
let's use this example, this defense of duress. So there has to be, in order to establish the defense of duress, a reasonable belief that the threat will be carried out. There has to be an inability to accept this, to escape the situation. And the offense or wrongdoing that's committed has to be proportionate to the threat. So those are the kinds of factors we have to analyze. Now, in the prison context, the inability to escape you know, that's going to be pretty easy for the right. inmate to establish. Um, now here, let's look at this proportionality question. The inmate said that he um, was facing the threat of serious bodily harm or even death. And what he did in response was not lock up his cell. It, it basically, he feared for his life and personal safety. And he, he caused a small administrative di disturbance as a, as a result. So to me, the proportionality there is met. Um, did he have a reasonable reasonable belief the threat would be carried out, well, yeah, here's where the prison code comes into analyzing that factor. Um, you know, in that context, yeah, it is a pretty reasonable belief. So, so, you know, the context of the institutional context is always going to play in um, when we're analyzing the rights and the defenses and the law that applies in prisons. Um, but you can't say, oh, no, inmates don't get to access the defense of duress. And that's because it's actually a principle of fundamental justice, which is a really important constitutional principle in Canada, that we don't punish people uh, for morally involuntary behavior. So if someone did something, but they had no choice to do otherwise, um, then we don't then give them a penal sanction. And it's important to remember what, what sanctions this disciplinary court is handing out. They're, you know, these dis decision makers have the power to put someone in segregation or solitary confinement for 30 days, possibly 45 days. Um, so, you know, that is a very significant sanction. It can have uh, all kinds of health effects on an inmate. It's a very difficult punishment. And so, you know, in our legal system, we don't impose that kind of serious punishment uh, for behavior that we don't find uh, was the, the product of a, an operating free will. So this is where organizations like the Queen's Prison Law Clinic come in, is, is they're there to represent the prisoner in these cases. Exactly. And so the clinic does all kinds of work for inmates. They're in the institutions day in and day out, you know, representing inmates on these, on, on these prison disciplinary court hearings, uh, helping with parole, helping with uh, occasions where inmates are transferred to higher security. Um, so there's a lot of important work the clinic does. Now, this case was part of um, the clinic's new focus or renewed focus on strategic litigation. So that means doing cases where uh, there's an important general principle at stake, uh, where there might be benefits achieved beyond that individual case. And so the clinic looked at this case and said, listen, accountability is really important so that these um, independent decision makers in this prison disciplinary court know that there's going to be a check on their decisions, right? That if they do something wrong in law <clears throat> or they do something for bad reasons, then we are going to go to the federal court and have those decisions reviewed. And so it's that's what they saw here as the important, I think, strategic issue was just the accountability issue. You know, the law was already clear on this. Um, the law was clear that the defense of duress applies. So it's not like this is a case about a, you know, a new legal principle or an important, you know, path-breaking precedent. But it was a really important instance of accountability um, for prison decision makers. 
That's fascinating. So uh, is there anything we kind of haven't covered about the case that you want to bring up before we close? Well, I think the one one question that people ask when they hear about, you know, this initial decision and then the judicial review in federal court is, you know, how is it that this decision maker got things so wrong, right? If the law is so clear, um, you know, and, and, and presumably these folks have some kind of legal training and they know about about the criminal code and about the, you know, correctional law, you know, how is it that he made a decision that was so wrong? And, um, you know, I think it, it kind of points to the importance of, um, um, you know, who is appointed into these positions. In this particular case, this decision maker, um, he had previously been a justice of the peace. And he had actually been removed from that position because of misconduct in court. So he's removed from his justice of the peace position. And then the Harper government made the decision to appoint him as an independent decision maker for these prison disciplinary courts. So to me, there's an important sort of, you know, investigation that might occur as to, you know, how do governments make decisions about who should get these positions? How politicized is that process? You know, do people have the appropriate background? Um, the clinic has actually done six appeals or judicial reviews from the decisions of this one guy in the past year. All of them have been successful. All of them have been decided or resolved in favor of the inmate. So, you know, there's many good decision makers in the prison context, and there's many very good independent decision makers in these disciplinary courts. But, um, you know, there's the odd bad apple. And, um, and that is, I think, why it is so important that inmates have access to justice, that they have access to counsel, that they can get to court and sort of, um, you know, ferret out <laughs> these bad apples to mix the metaphors there um, when, when it, the situation really calls for it. Right. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks to Lisa Kerr. If you're interested in criminal law, you should check out Law 201701, the Certificate in Law's Introduction to Canadian Law course at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton. She's also a staff member here at Queen's Law, and you can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. If you like this podcast, rate and recommend it on iTunes. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening.